Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning, not from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. My standard introduction doesn't work, Tom. This is the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio B in Starkville. On the road in Starkville. So we're at the Row Crop Short Course this morning, and we got a couple of special guests that were on the program for the short course, and we were honored to get them to sit down with us for a few minutes and talk. So like I said, it's, it's February now, but we actually recorded this at the Row Crop Short Course. So we got Brian Arnall from Oklahoma State and Trent Roberts from the University of Arkansas. So this is actually Monday morning at the Row Crop Short Course. So they're on the program actually here in a few minutes. And uh, so we're going to talk some fertility with them, and but we're going to focus on issues that will come along more in that February, you know, early spring time frame. I don't know what I add to that. Other than it's nice to be here, it's good to see you all, and really being able to take advantage of the face-to-face contact is so much better than the telephone. Honored is a big word, too, by the way. I'm... Well, it is. <laughs> well, that's heartfelt sentiment. Yeah. I, I mean, that's... Well, and what, what I would say is it's it's great to be invited to the short yeah. course, but the podcast is definitely the icing on the cake. So. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. Gosh, that. I, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored by the comment. If we release this in February, then baseball season is going to be right around the corner. All right. A lot of drama between OSU and Arkansas last baseball season. So – Game one of the 23 season, if it was OSU and Arkansas, who wins that game? Arkansas by a mile. Oh. Oak State. <laughs> I mean, did you see the way those guys acted in that series? I mean, it's like, act like you've been oh, here man. before. Yeah, it had been a while since we had been there. <laughs> see, and you could almost put this back into the whole conversation that we set the program for Row Crop Short Course while we're at the MAIC. So clearly Jason appears to have had a little bit of thought process into who he wanted here so that they could discuss the baseball. <laughs> baseball. No, actually, I, I came up with that just about the time oh, yeah. I hit record. You know, because we had asked Brian about yeah. the windmills mm-hmm. when he was oh, yeah. on with us last fall. I couldn't get one. I, could, I didn't have an angle that got Trent and Brian, you yeah. know, something like that. And then 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 I remembered that baseball series. In the, that was a regional, though, that wasn't it? Yeah, that wasn't yeah. even a super regional. No. They should not have been in the same regional. They were both way too good to be in the same regional. It was just – it was odd. Yeah. We do have a nice new stadium, though. Our, our new ballpark. You need to come back to Stillwater sometimes. They did, they did good on the Stillwater ballpark. So You have a lot of nice new things. Yes, we do. Once you left, we got nice things. That's all Thanks. it takes. That's all it takes. Trent, Trent and I actually did undergrad together. And so oh, we've known right. each that's other right. for a little bit. It's been about – 22 years since we first met, so yeah. we've got a long history of disagreement. I'll try to verbally point out that that's oil money and not windmill money. <laughs> that is, yes. Unfortunately, that'll probably hit the floor. Which some, is, some, the, the better part is some of the new money is actually Arkansas dairy money that's come to Oklahoma State, so that's, that's even a better win. Our new ag building is coming from a guy who farms in Arkansas that Trent works for. Oh, works with, I'm sorry. That, that's a that's a low blow. Um, so how how about fertilizer? fertilizer? Maybe we should switch the the conversation to fertilizer. Yeah. All right. So keep in mind, we're going to do this in February. Mm-hmm. So we, we'll start planting corn 
three to first, five weeks. Yeah, first of March, March depending on the weather. Yep. Trent, our rice will start going in and probably two or three weeks after mm-hmm. that, again, weather permitting. You know, beans will start going in, you know, first of April. April. Occasionally we'll have a few go in in March. And cotton starts dropping. Yeah, cotton will be mid-April on through from there. So when I'm thinking of that time frame, a lot of the stuff I'm thinking is, you know, how much of your pre have you gotten out, making sure you have your plan for in season. But a lot of the questions I get around that February time frame is starter programs. What am I going to do? What What's my inferno capability? What should I do? Uh, when it comes to the corn crop, and I would say cotton also, there's been a lot of love for getting more nitrogen in row. There's a lot of folks that want to feel like they want to get more fertility down with that seed or near that seed, heavy nitrogen. And everything that I've done all over the place is my love for nitrogen up front is reducing as the years go on. I, I don't really worry about how much nitrogen. It really doesn't matter what crop. We could talk wheat, corn, sorghum, soy, cotton. I, I don't really want to get a whole lot of nitrogen because it, it doesn't benefit. What you get value from that starter is the FOSS, maybe potassium, might be some of your, your ability to get your micros in. So I know some of your ground down in Mississippi has that high pH because your water's hard. you got that, that free bicarb. You've got the heavy calcium, so you're flirting with pHs of 6 or 7, 2, and up in that realm just because you've got all that bicarb. That bicarb is hard on some of your nutrients like phosphorus and zinc and iron, those things that bind. And so when you're getting those higher pHs, your most valuable application time is that planter. So let's talk – talk a high pH for soy and kind of for corn, I'm really wanting to look at my iron and zinc in anything that's flirting above a 7-2 because those are being bound by the higher pH. And research after research would tell you, you're much better off of putting iron on as a starter than ever trying to go foliar. That foliar, that trying to recover after you see iron deficiency chlorosis, it's, it's just really hard you got to put on so much it's not near as effective as putting on product in furrow because it's just so much more effective that way the plant gets access to it so i got a lot of folks that are really trying to bump their nitrogen in row bump their potassium in row which is a little scary uh once you start getting high potash because it's most of it's a salt form and so now we start having some seedling injury we get a little root injury and so you you really got to know what product you're pushing and how much you can actually get down depending on your row space. In a, another lifetime, when I dabbled around with this kind of thing, uh, mainly in rice, you know, we could see it like a starter application. And in rice, not it was never an, an in furrow. It would be mm-hmm. a spike in treatment, one to two leaf rice timing. And you could always see it. You might even catch a height difference or something like that. Possibly speed up or reduce the number of days to flood but it always washed out in the end so how do you capture the value of that starter Uh, whether in corn or in rice trent well i'll 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 do what i'll answer that and i'll let trent jump in so there's a lot of stuff that is put in with the starter that's nothing more than feel good there's a lot of things you can add, a lot of fluffy stuff you can put in with your starter fertilizer that might give you a green up. And this is why I tell the guys all the time, it might give you a pop of green for a day or two, but you're never going to sort that out and yield. 
I had a farmer back in the day, he was spending 15 bucks an acre on some product and he did it for years and he, he had clean filters. It was rough to run through any of his system. And I asked him, he's like, Marty, you, you making any money off of this? You making any yields? Like, no, oh, no, I'm not. Well, why are you doing this? Because it makes me feel better. It's like, well, Marty, give me seven bucks an acre. I'll come to your house each night and pat you on the back and try to make you feel better. Because it's just not, there's some things that will give you that pop of green. It, it's not going to go to yield. So in that, that's where we got to use our technology and turn off a pass and measure it with that combine coming through and get us get us that infield check strip just to make sure what that return on investment. That, that goes for all nutrients, NPKS, starter, Turn it off for 20 foot and see, see end of season what it looks like. Well, and when we talk about rice specifically, you know, we, we don't tend to do much starter nitrogen in rice just because of the loss potential. But Jason brought up a really good point about this two to three leaf application. And Which we call a starter. Yeah. That's the, in, in the rice world, that terminology yeah. carries over to, to that timing. And. You know, in Arkansas, a lot of times that's going to be an ammonium sulfate. Right. Uh, if people need phosphorus, the they're going to that's go with the, the two dab. choices. What I always try to tell people, especially in these high pH soils, like Brian's talked about, is if you're going to put out phosphorus, put it out with some nitrogen because the nitrogen is going to help facilitate that P uptake. And so DAP is a, is a great product. Uh, I really wish in some cases we had more access to MAP. Uh, just because MAP, monoammonium phosphate, is a little bit better product for our high pH soils, but we just don't have access to it. So um, chemically, the difference between DAP and MAP when they dissolve is diammonium. DAP will dissolve, and it'll dissolve as a calcareous solution. And so we like it on our acidic ground. MAP will dissolve in an acidic solution. So you put MAP in to a high pH, and it dissolves low, so you're actually neutralizing a little bit of that calcareous soil solution around the phosphorus for, for a little bit of time, and, and it's more beneficial. And so to that point, you know, it helps kind of acidify that soil and increase the P availability, but for whatever reason, our co-ops, our fertilizer companies, we just don't have access to it in the Mid-South. Um, but, you know, going back to... Uh, another starter thing, especially in rice and on these high pH soils, is zinc. And we talk about this idea of, you know, what, what do you need to be proactive about? I think with rice uh, and especially corn and uh, Arkansas and Mississippi on high pH soils, zinc is the key. Because it's one of those types of things that if you're not proactive and you don't address it up front, you're always running behind, right? You're always trying to play catch up. And the best you can do in season is a Band-Aid. And sometimes that Band-Aid doesn't even stop the bleeding. And so, to me, that's one that we really, really need to be proactive about. And in Arkansas and Mississippi, I think we've got really good guidelines about when and where we need zinc applications. And that's really what I've tried to put my focus on the last few years is just trying to get the message out that, you know, pre-plant soil-applied zinc is a great investment because it's going to help ensure that you don't have zinc deficiency in season, but it builds soil test zinc to where eventually you don't have to apply it. And, you know, one of the big misconceptions, especially with foliar zinc, is that it's beneficial to the plant in season, but it has no lasting residual effects. And so it, it truly is a Band-Aid in the sense that it doesn't help to increase soil test zinc. So it's, I mean, you're just committing yourself to an every year application. And so that soil-applied pre-plant zinc is really, really critical for a lot of a lot of reasons. Trent, on your soil-applied, is that a zinc sulfate or a chelate? 
So typically we're always going to go with um, about 10 pounds of actual zinc as a zinc sulfate source uh, is our primary recommendation. Um, the only time we use chelates is for typically in-season applications where we're trying to get both foliar and, and soil activity. Let's check these off by crop. So corn, starter, Brian, if we're going to use a starter, what does that starter need to include? So corn starter, I want to go back to, to the more basic, get your soil test done. Because okay. if you've got a soil that's a six and it's got good zinc, then I don't need to be paying for any of that extra zinc and iron in that, that six. It's going to be highly available. So that soil test is extremely important. Early season, if you're looking at planting cool, wet soils, then you got to get a little bit of that foss in. There's a lot of value in having that phosphorus near seed, near root for that germination. And then you really start playing with above that, uh, and you can start adding in based upon soil test. Maybe I've got a, a deep, sandy soil, and I want to look at some of our mobile nutrients and making sure that those mobile nutrients are tended to uh, chlorides or, or, or the boron in some cases, and that can be in with that starter. But it's really going to be field specific on what the field's needs are because you shouldn't in my opinion you shouldn't have one starter program across every field when you have a diversity of fields how often do you recommend soil testing <clears throat> because i, I, I would I say think, go back and listen to the podcast we did with well Brian but i think time. it's not a bad idea <laughs> to continue to talk about that no, it's, because no, i mean no, perfect. If, if there's a drum that any of us can beat it's talking about soil testing because that drives everything that you yep. need to make for that decision preseason and then in season so that you're not shooting blind i was promoting archived episodes of the podcast i, I appreciate <laughs> that i do so, so, so my rec is, depending on how you're managing it, at least every three to four years, if that's what you're doing as that composite level, make sure you get that done. If you're making big changes, if you're applying a lot of zinc trying to raise a soil, uh, soil test, if you're applying lime, you're, if you're applying something to change those values, then I want it more often. If I'm in a build program for zinc, phosphorus, potassium, I'm probably wanting to sample every two years so I can see how well I'm building and how well I'm tracking with my plan to make adjustments. But if I'm just going on a field composite, I want it at least every three to four years. I'm not a big fan of grid sampling every single year. I think I grid sample once and I move on and I do zone, zone sampling on a more annual basis after that point. I would completely agree. And I think in uh, at least in Arkansas, we would kind of set that timing up based on the rotation. So if you're a one-to-one rice soybean, then every two years. If you're, you know, two years rice or two years beans, one year, with kind of a three-year rotation, then you do it every every three years. Uh, one thing that I recommend, and what we're seeing a lot in Arkansas, is crops being planted in non-traditional areas. And so you think about like Arkansas County south of Stuttgart. I mean, it looks like Iowa now. You know, 16 years ago, that was that was rice, you know, wall-to-wall rice, and now it's wall-to-wall corn. Um, you know, there are a lot of spots that I've been driving past for 16 years, and this is the first time I've seen cotton planted in those fields. And so along the soil testing lines, I think when you switch up your rotation and you're planting something that you haven't traditionally planted in that field, that's also another good time to go in and get that soil sampled, get that soil test so that you can make sure that new crop you're introducing, you have adequate nutrient supply. Trent, rice, starter, early season, whatever terminology you want to add to that. What are we wanting to see? I know we've basically covered this, but just to to go crop by crop, what do we need to see in that application? So in rice, in my checklist, the top is always going to be zinc. 
So make sure you address your zinc pre-plant when you can. Uh, the next one would be phosphorus. And the way that I gauge um, kind of the order of those nutrients is how successful we can be correcting the deficiency in season. Zinc is really tough, so I want to address it pre-plant with my pre-plant fertilizer. Phosphorus, we've got a little bit larger window, so we can go pre-plant or early, right, pre-flood. When we start talking about our other nutrients like potassium and nitrogen, we've got a much larger window for management. And so those are the types of uh, nutrients where we can say, okay, based on fertilizer prices or based on input costs, I've got more flexibility to apply it. So I may not go strong with my pre-plant program because I know I can fix it later in the season. And one of the big things that that I would promote is our uh, potash rate calculator. So that's a new tool that we've developed where you take soil test information, you take input costs, and you take anticipated yield goal, and it gives you an economic potash rate. And that may not always be the yield maximizing, you know, if potash is eight, nine hundred, a thousand dollars a ton. But that allows us to say, okay, we're going to start off with our most economical rate. And then if prices change in season, we know we can correct it if we want to. And so I think there are a lot of flexibility with nitrogen and potassium, not near as much flexibility with phosphorus and zinc. I would say almost no flexibility, especially in rice. We want to address that pre-plant. So is there any difference then between paddy flooded rice and row rice in those general recommendations and guidelines? Um, So uh, thanks for bringing that up, Tom. For zinc, I would say no. For phosphorus is the big one. And phosphorus gets really tough in furrow irrigated rice. Uh, We've got a little bit of work. Uh, We're doing some collaborations with a couple of the states. But it appears more often than not we need to increase our pea fertilization rates in furrow irrigated rice. Uh, I don't want to get into all the chemistry Uh, But long story short, in an upland or non-flooded system, phosphorus is going to be less available. And so all of our current recommendations are based on, you know, direct seeded delayed flood rice where pea availability is going to be very high in the soil. And so if we grow rice aerobically or in furrow, that pea is less available in the soil. So we've got to add extra fertilizer to make up for it. And in those cases, phosphorus pre-plant becomes much more important. Which is kind of funny, and, and it's not even my region, but that whole rice rotation in and out of what it does to the nutrients when you're on-cycle rice, off-cycle rice, so you go from rice, maybe wheat or something. What the, the soils are doing with the difference of aerobic and non-aerobic, meaning having or not having oxygen, changes. One field, the way you manage for rice is going to change when it comes to, because it may be very binding for phosphorus when it's dry. And so... Paying close attention to your rotation, working under U of A and Mississippi State's recommendations are extremely important in some of these more more tough phosphorus binding soils. That brings up another point that I'll just mention. Um, you know, I don't know if anybody's tried growing corn after rice, right? But it just comes out of the ground and stays purple forever. Well, that's an impact of this phosphorus availability following that rice. And so, you know, that would be a situation that I would try to avoid. But if you are going to try to grow corn after rice, same type of thing. We really have to focus on that phosphorus because we know that's going to be an issue following that rice crop. Rice after corn is kind of bad, too. It can be, yeah. We've seen that several times. Well, and I would imagine those those rotational strategies may start picking up depending upon what soil class or structure somebody's on or how they see the markets playing into their 
benefit by the end of the season. Well, and, you know, I think we've done a fair amount of work with furrowgated rice, trying to get, you know, irrigation timing and, you know, all those kind of agronomic things figured out. I think the next big thing we need to focus on are some of these rotational issues. You know, um, soybean is obviously, right, going to fit well, but can we start mixing in some of these, you know, other crops like corn and and how do we do it? And if we are going to do it, you know, what's the management? Because it's going to be so different uh, than we would traditionally, um, you know, think about in our direct seeded delayed flood rotations. So let's talk about soybeans. That's our Number one row crop mm-hmm. you know, in our state. So I know guys be interested in hearing y'all's thoughts on early season fertility for soybeans, whether that's pre-plant or getting into the season where the situation dictates that. So, so for me, I think it's a it's a good run off of what Trent just said, talking about how corn after rice, it's almost always purple, but beans after rice, beans tend to be more successful. In finding phosphorus, we don't ever want phosphorus to be limited on our bean crop, but beans tend to be a little little better at finding phosphorus. They have the capability to get to it. So I, I see a lot less response to phos to soybean, but it's the potassium. Uh, the need for potassium is much like cotton. The same is that both of these crops that don't need much early on vegetatively, as they're growing before you get R1, we don't see a lot of K uptake. But as soon as you start pod set or bowl set, that K level, that K uptake curve just starts slamming high. And we're talking pounds of K per acre per day, three, four, five, six pounds of K per day. And so what I see on the K management is that we're moving in some of our tougher ground into a split application of potassium depending on the season. So we'll, so Trent and I both kind of uh, soils lab, soils uh, chemistry kind of folks. I, I don't know soil chemistry, but I run a soil, soil lab, so that's kind of a, a weird aspect there. But there's a lot of talk, and I'll mention this in my talk today probably, there's a lot of talk about the inaccuracies of soil test potassium on determining response or need for potassium. A lot of people talk about that. And I don't think it's necessarily that the soil test is wrong. The soil test is nothing more than a chemical extraction trying to estimate plant-available potassium, given everything's the same. What what we're not doing with our testing is understanding there's also a volumetric issue, is that we're making an assumption that soil test goes to the depth of the soil or the, the crop has access to all the potassium. And so specifically with soybeans, what I see is if you have heavy ground or you have some kind of, or you have nematodes on light ground, you have some kind of root limiting factor, your soil test may be high, but you all of a sudden, as soon as you go reproductive, you have a flash of K deficiency. Well, that may not be the soil's issue. It might be the crop's issue on getting to the soil because you have row compaction, you have uh, subsoil compaction, you have nematodes. And so we're moving to a, a two-shot on potassium, getting some up front that is economical, and then seeing how root development goes, seeing how the crop's going, and the early signs of that deficiency at reproductive, we're actually applying 0060 over the top and being pretty successful uh, getting out of that restrictive because it, it lets you not put all your eggs in that early basket because if potash is $1,000 a ton or $700 a ton, I don't necessarily want to go in thinking I have to have extra potassium because I'm going to have root problems. I want to make sure that I'm going to need it before I apply it. So we're doing kind of a two-pass. Anything, any cotton over four bale uh, is getting a two-pass system, and a lot of our high plains has root issues. And I'm doing a lot of in-season 
in season potassium on soybean right now. Uh, double crop specifically, we did a lot of double crop soy, and it needs needs a shot of K that in season. Yeah, and I would agree. You know, where we're kind of shifting our focus is to split applications when we're recommending more than ninety units of K two O per acre. You know, get a little out pre plant, and then you know, really let that crop tell you in season what else it needs. Um, And Brian brought up a really great point. You know, we're seeing more and more what I call compaction-induced nutrient deficiencies. And there are certain tillage implements that we've adopted, especially in the Mid-South, that just, you know, it's an easy one one or two-pass shot, but it's creating a new, shallower artificial Mm -hmm. plow pan. And so if you think about a lot of our soils, you know, we've usually got a, a plow pan or a restrictive layer about six to eight inches. Well, we're creating another one at about four inches. And so even in rice, as well as soybean and other crops, we're really starting to see this compaction leading to, to nutrient deficiencies when soil yeah. test levels are adequate. And it's an effect of the tillage that we're using yep. in these systems. So something to, to definitely think about, and that, that's going to be a focus of some work, you know, going forward. But uh, split applications of potash and soybean can be very beneficial. You know, part of why I promote that is uh, with high potash prices, you know, a lot of times soy producers, you get in season and you're shifting around irrigation, and, you know, you you may not, give that soybean crop as much attention as it needs. And so why spend the money if you're not going to be able to really push it to its maximum potential? And so it just gives you more flexibility. And and the work that we've done, at least in our irrigated production systems, you know, we can get responses to potash all the way out to R4, R5. And so that window of opportunity when we irrigate is huge. And so, you know, that's put out a little up front, and then come back in season and, and use tissue testing and some of our dynamic critical concentrations to tell us what else the plant really needs. The evolution of potash applications that y'all are talking about, so the split applications, not a new concept. It's kind of new for soybeans, making two applications. So there's multiple factors at play there, high-yield mm-hmm. soybeans. We're putting more into that crop. Therefore, we making higher yields can't afford to put more into the crop. So talk about nutrient removal and how that relates to what we're talking about ne- necessarily. How does it influence this kind of evolution in application timings and sequences that, that y'all been discussing? Or, uh, and hold on, expand on that a little bit more. Can you use what you're pulling off that previous crop to really dictate what you have to put out for the subsequent season if you're not soil testing every year? Well, so that, that gets a little bit tricky, and, and that goes into things like soil test philosophy, mm-hmm. right? So you have to understand how your LGU has set up your fertilizer rate recommendations. So Wait, what LGU, what's that? Oh, sorry, land-grant university. Okay. That's that's my generic uh, sorry. Catch-all, wow. catch-all phrase. <laughs> um, well, that that's a big thing in the nutrient thing right now is what is your LGU recommendation mm-hmm. for nutrient management? Um but long story short, um, when you start thinking about, you know, nutrient removal and, and those types of things, uh, our fertilizer rates are based on a specific philosophy. So at the University of Arkansas, we kind of have a hybrid between a sufficiency and a build and maintain with the idea that we're, we're going to apply enough to maximize crop yield, 
but we're hopefully going to add a little bit of excess when we're in the very low and low soil test categories to help build soil test concentrations over time. So what that means is we're knowingly kind of fertilizing the crop and the soil at the same time. And that, that can be good and bad. Um, it can be good from the standpoint that you should build soil test levels over time, but the counter to that, and a lot of the questions we get from producers is, well, I'm following your build and maintain recommendation, but my soil test levels aren't increasing. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the nutrient removal aspect. If you're producing 80 or 90 bushel soybean, then our recommendation is no longer a build. It's just a maintenance mm-hmm. now. And so I, I like our recommendation because it gives you that flexibility, knowing you're always going to have enough Um, But in some years, you may actually add to soil test nutrients, but in some years, it's just a maintenance. Um, The, you know, one of the problems with just using a checkbook type of approach um, with saying, I removed this much, I need to put this much back, is um, a lot of the soil tests that we use are an index, right? You can't just assume that what you get on your soil test report is all plant available. You know, it's an index of availability, And so as we remove nutrients, it's not a straight one-to-one change Mm -hmm. in soil test values. And so it gets very tricky when you just try to use this checkbook approach because, you know, a lot of producers will say, oh, well, I removed, you know, 100 pounds of potash in my grain. So my soil test should drop by, you know, 100 pounds of soil test K or 50 parts per million. And it doesn't work that way because that number – especially when you put units next to it. I mean, it should be yeah, unitless. should be. But it's an index. And so it's it's not really a one-to-one comparison. No, and, and I'll, I'll add real quick uh, as far as the checkbook approach is that those numbers we use for removal and those numbers we use for the build are a average of a very large range. So uh, uh, 80-bushel bean crop can take up a wide range of totals, and so if we're just making an assumption that we're removing X pounds per bushel, well, you know what assumptions do. Same thing on your, your K level. Some, some soils don't need a lot of K to increase, and some need a whole lot of K to increase a little bit. So that's where the soil testing is still important once we get in there, just knowing how is our soil responding to the cropping system. How about closing comments from you two? Give us, you know, just brief bullet points moving into the mm-hmm. 2023 crop. What's important from where you sit right now? So uh, the one thing that I would promote is just sound soil sampling. And at least uh, in the Mid-South, I would encourage everyone to take a look at our potash rate calculators. Uh, we have those available for soybean, corn, cotton, and rice. And it just allows you to make sure you're kind of maximizing your profitability as it relates to potassium management in those row crops. It's a great starting point, and uh, that's what I would really encourage people to do. My take home is 22 was a cluster. Let's let's, uh, not take any really big lessons out of 22 and and completely change up what we're doing. Uh, Going into 23, my big thing is... Check what you're doing. I've always been a huge proponent of whatever you're doing, don't assume you're right or whatever you're told to do. Don't assume you're right and put out check strips, whether it's high or low or both. So that's NPK, zinc, iron, manganese, sulfur, humix, humates, whatever it is. Have check strips in the field that you can pay attention to and find out how your field is actually responding to your management and utilize them well. 
as far as my shameless plugs, uh, my uh, pretty social media heavy as far as OSUMPK. You Google that and you find uh, my blog, find website, find Twitter and all that. We have a podcast in Oklahoma where we have basically three soil scientists and a communication specialist that sit around microphones and make fun of each other on a regular basis. That's Red Dirt Agronomy, and you can find it at reddirtagronomy.com. Thank you both. I think that's a wildly important topic to even start discussing in December because I think we need a lot more guidance in those particular areas. And the, the artistic standpoint that goes with farming from a nutrient management perspective is pretty important. So thank you. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.